It is 15th of December 2022. We're coming up to the darkest period of the year. Uh, Glasgow is experiencing temperatures as low as minus nine at the moment. Christmas is approaching with a cost of living crisis, potential energy crisis, there's (laughs) blackouts Mm -hmm. potentially on the horizon. Uh, Fortunately, my dictaphone is battery operated, (laughs) so we should just get through this uh, interview okay, Uh, because I'm here in the cosy office of Ewan Morrison. Ewan is the author of eight books, including Swung, Tales from the Mall, uh, Nina X. His most recent novel is How to Survive Everything, which is about doomsday preppers. Um, But Ewan also writes journalism, and this week published a fascinating article uh, about optimistic nihilists. Uh, And it's with this that I I, I wanted to start. So, uh, and particularly, Mm. start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The Big Bang... Mm-hmm. Creation. <laughs> like, how interested are you in the origin of the universe? And, like, what does it mm. matter to our sense of self? Sure, I would think that's really important. I think that we tend to, without realizing it, frame our worldviews around narratives about the cosmos. Or, say, for example, um, the 1850s, the heat death of the universe was put forward as a thesis and it it sort of gathered weight until it became the norm around about the turn of the century. And if you look through Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, you'll find references to the theory of the heat death of the universe. And it's from that that the idea of the meaninglessness of all existence comes about. So, So you've got the birth of existentialism comes from that theory of the cosmos. Um, and that goes right up into the present day, um, where we're now just starting to overturn the uh, theory of the heat death of the universe. So, for those who've not come across it before, um, heat death is the idea that, that the universe just keeps expanding and expanding and cooling down and cooling down and cooling down until everything is dead. Everything is, is, is just um, zero degrees Kelvin with no activity between atoms, whatever, just just nothingness. Total entropy. Total entropy. A state of to- total entropy. After everything gets sucked into the black holes and they, and they leak out their energy through Hawking's, Hawking radiation. And, you know, and the timescales are vast. We're looking at like a gigaplex of years until that happens. But it, it, it's a theory that, that finds, it lends weight to the philosophical issue of meaninglessness and I think we've been haunted by the idea that life is meaningless since since theory of the heat death of the universe which coincided with also the death of God around about the same time in the 1850s with Schopenhauer and Nietzsche so I mean it's a hugely depressing theory of the universe um, in as much as if you were to map out what organic life would be on that time scale and create a map the map would go all the way around the world. Uh, that would be like the time the universe lasts, and there would be like a tiny atom on that map would be the amount of time that organic life could possibly exist. I mean, it's not just us that's going to vanish. Everything that could provide life will also vanish. So, yeah, once you dabble with that stuff, I mean, it opens the floodgates really to nihilism of one kind or another. I'm more inclined 
to want to believe in the idea of a cyclic cosmology, whether that's uh, Penrose's theories of um, cyclic cosmology or big bounce, as they call it. So, so the universe expands, then it contracts again, expands and contracts again. I much prefer an idea. And this is, this is where Nietzsche got to with the idea of eternal recurrence. Yeah, yeah. The idea that even though mm. we're going to um, you mm. know, live out these seemingly meaningless, meaningless moments, yeah. we're going to live them again and again and again, mm. which mm. makes it more important that we do important things, more, more you know, essential things. So yeah. you know, I'm going to interview mm. you for the rest of eternity at this <laughs> moment. So I better get it right. That's the, <laughs> was, it's kind of like Groundhog Day, though, as well. You can see, you can see that that's also... Well, I think I think Nietzsche was struggling towards the end of his life to try to live up to the positivity that he wanted to express. He wanted a, a like a like a positive outcome um, to his own philosophy. But as I think his mind itself was was starting to fall apart, the attempts at that became more fragmented and abstract and desperate. So. There's very few people, me included, who who can really get a handle on what he really meant by the eternal return. Is it a symbolic thing? Is he actually talking about a universe that repeats, or is he talking about reincarnation, or um, or just just a, a a rule that you live your life by, so that you would say, well, I might as well make the best of this moment. Imagine if it was repeated forever. So then it would just be a kind of behavioural tool. It's hard to know exactly what he meant by that. I mean, I guess these questions of scale mm. are really important. So that scale could be, you know, four billion, 14 billion years yeah. of the universe to this point, mm, or it mm, could mm. be, you know, a geological time, you mm. know, the Anthropocene, yeah. making people's lives feeling depressed because of the environment, you mm-hmm, know, such, mm-hmm. such things. But equally, you know, we get the mindfulness movement talking yeah. about enjoying a cup of tea yeah, or yeah. some cheese. Mm-hmm. However, so um, mm-hmm. I guess, how do you feel about that question of scale? Do do we need, as you know, existentialists or people living today, to care about what's happened a billion years ago or a thousand years ago? Where, where do you exist? What kind of scale? Well, I think I think it's it's part of a question much more broadly about the meaning crisis that we live with just now. So I think a lot of the behaviours we're involved with just now are forms of nihilism or optimistic nihilism, as it's called, where you just simply distract yourself from the big questions of scale. So you distract yourself from next week, next year. Um, and the downside of, of that way of living with that small frame is that it makes it hard to set long-term goals or to believe in long-term things. Having a family, trying to save up for a house or trying to trying to work in a single career or whatever. Life can become very fragmented when you haven't got at least a lifelong scale. So I think even smaller than the the idea of thinking about 14 billion years, which I love to do, by the way, um, thinking about even a lifetime has become increasingly hard to do as the stage we're in with, with capitalism. Everything is very short-term, very fast, the digital economy means means that we work very short-term contracts without any long-term really connections to specific people. The idea of a job for life now seems you know almost impossible unless you were a billionaire who owns your own company. Um, we have to shift with the technological changes that hit us. 
So, you know, you can start off as a film editor and then film gets thrown out, so you have to be a video editor and then you then have to become a digital editor and then you have to compete with people who are 10 years younger than you and know the computers, you know, more than you do and before you know it, you're, like, running your own business from your laptop whereas before, 20 years ago, you worked in a huge institution, you know, editing broadcast television. Um, so there's many, many jobs that are like that. That are just becoming fragmented. So I think that the framing that we live with just now is very small and focused on just some survival in the now, really. Um, but you know, for me, there's great dangers in looking in the cosmic scale as to the question of what is our purpose or value. Um, that can lead very much to to terrible states of hopelessness and depression, but. It's good to check in on it every now and again just to make sure that, that you're not getting caught up in the minutiae of just survival, you know, just daily survival and consumerism. You have to, well, I find I have to step back into a space I think that would have been previously occupied by, say, religion or, you know, systems of contemplation. Or it, it, It's important to, to, to address that. It's funny that we, you know, live in this fragmented time where something like optimistic nihilism can exist on YouTube. There'll be lots of videos about it. People write articles about it. But until you posted that essay, I'd never heard of it before. Right, yeah, yeah. We all live in these little niches where we sometimes don't come across ideas. But in some of the niches I'm in, you know, there is a revival of interest in Catholicism and Mm -hmm. trad ways mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. things like that. I don't know how niche that mm-hmm. is compared to other things, but one of the other things I've come across recently that has been in the news is uh, effective altruism, mm-hmm. which seems to be a kind of, uh, not quite opposite to optimistic nihilism, okay. but it's a bunch of young people mm-hmm. operating under the ideas of John Stuart Mill and Peter okay. Singer, right? Yeah, to yeah. try and save as many lives as possible. Okay, in their lifetime. So I don't know if you've come across these. I haven't actually. You... I must be in a different echo chamber than you are. Um, that's that's fascinating. So that's very much the opposite of optimistic nihilism. Which, in a nutshell, optimistic nihilism is you live. Well, I, I guess you live in front of your computer and you you believe in nothing. You you believe that life itself is meaningless, but you use that as a consolation to just f- focus on the things that make you feel good. So you, you're you optimistic about your own pleasures that you have, even though life is meaningless. And because life is meaningless, the universe is meaningless, you can use that as a framing device to get yourself through um, any periods where you feel let down or disappointed. So you've been dumped by your partner of 20 years or you've been fired or you've just you've been through a really tough work assessment and told that you're you, that you're rubbish um you can use optimistic nihilism to compare this horrible thing that's happened to you you can compare it to the 14 billion years of evolution when you didn't exist and you can go well it doesn't really matter <laughs> you know everything's meaningless you can say so well, the thing is, mm. you had real nihilism. I think that's part of the issue, that you grew up yeah. in, you know, Gen X mm, mm. era of real nihilism. Like, yeah. 
but you still got stuff done. Like, mm-hmm. what's the difference between the kind of Gen X nihilism and the optimistic nihilists of today? Well, I think the great problem with optimistic nihilism today is it's a it's a demotivator right from the start. So it's 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 a kind of back door out of any situation, whether that's work or or career or art or I mean it's 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 the question why should I do anything? I can have fun. My, if, if everything's meaningless in the universe, I'll just focus on my own pleasure. In the meantime, even though pleasure itself is meaningless, and even though the self itself is meaningless, you know, it's full of contradictions, optimistic nihilism. I think we in Gen X were more involved in what I would call like stage one nihilism, which is the idea that it's extremely cool to destroy things. So you got this as well just before the Russian Revolution. There was a movement, a bit like Gen X, um, of people who actually went around calling themselves nihilists. Can you imagine how funny that would have been? Oh, we're the nihilists. You know, we've come to smash your belief system. <laughs> um, so there's a sort of punk rock uh, sort of attitude um, and grunge, slacker, industrial music, that whole thing. You see bands like Missionary, uh, so Ministry are still pounding out this relentless Gen X nihilism. Fuck everybody. Fuck everything. But, I mean, for me, it's really just the start of nihilism, and Nietzsche would be very disappointed in that kind of nihilism as well, because he would say okay, you're against the church and you're against the government and you're against marriage and you're against having kids and you're against everything. Shopping, consumerism, the sexes. But you're still standing on some ground that you believe is solid. You've not gone deep enough into the nihilism to realise that you're actually standing on the void as well. So I think that was what Gen X did. I think Gen X spent 10 or 20 years destroying other people's belief systems in a so playful punky sort of way and then maybe in our 30s or 40s maybe some of us in our 50s we realized we were actually standing on very thin veneer that was over the void and that we actually had to work out usually when we had kids we had to work out if we did believe in anything at all i mean you can just imagine a child rearing manual like toddler taming or doctor's spock or something called called the nihilist parent you know it's like, you know, mummy, you know, what should I do? I got someone hit me at school. You would go, well, you could hit them back because I'm a moral nihilist. You could kill them because I'm a moral nihilist. Or we could just go back to some Judeo-Christian principles of turning the other cheek. But we don't really believe in that. <laughs> One of the critiques of nihilism in general is it's just the obverse of the religion that came before it. So especially yeah. atheism mm. is an example where... The, the whole moral framework is, you mm. know, the reverse. Or, you know, like, it's it, it's built upon this foundation of Christianity. And we know a lot of kind of socialist movements came mm. out of Methodism. And, sure. And yep. a lot of these things. And so, yeah, I do wonder... And uh, the Protestant um, sects, you know, that left and went over to America, the whole progressive movement came from all the Protestant sects that were too annoying to us in the UK. <laughs> we sent them off... In in little ships, the Pilgrim Fathers and whatever were were very puritanical people that that uh, that the British wanted rid of. And so it's not really escaping from that Christian heritage. It's it's just another form of Christianity, but like a bit edgier, darker, and you know, like the Manichaeans mm. or something. It's kind yeah. of uh, 
it's a heresy, nihilism, possibly. Um, well, I think I think if you really do it properly, like Friedrich Nietzsche did, you have to throw away morality. You have to. You can't just cling to a Christian morality and be nihilistic about everything else. I think that's the challenge for most people who call themselves nihilists. They're not. They're quite shallow in as much as they'll still cling to the idea that they're a good person. If you're a true philosophical nihilist, you would have to explore the possibility that there are no morals. That actually, you know, again, to look at the bigger framing, over 14 billion years, what does it matter if you die, if you kill yourself, or if, you know, or if you kill 100 people, you know? You know, that's one of the dangers of going all the way with nihilism, is you will, once you reject morals as well... um, there's really nothing to stop you destroying yourself and other people. And so, you know, if you do it properly, if you if you follow nihilism all the way. And so, in the article, you say you were a nihilist for about fifteen years. Yeah. Which uh, <laughs> did, did you make it all the way? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I made my I made it all the way to complete demotivation. Mm-hmm. I, it's just that sense, like, why should I finish reading this book? You know, there's no point. There's no point in reading. There's no point in education. There's no point, oh, I'll get drunk. What's the point of getting drunk? I'll go out and see some friends, but all my friends are going to die too. So what's the point of that? Well, I'll just stay here. But what's the point of staying here? Why am I here, you know? So I went through periods of, of deep deep depression as a result of the, of the nihilism that I got myself into. You know, nihilism which started off in a very punk rock sort of way, like just fuck everyone and fuck all values. But, but, but when you start to... To you know, and it eats away your own values and your own motivation. So, I really struggle and still struggle with depression. You know, to this day, um, I've done lots of therapy over depression. I use writing as a way to keep myself motivated to not sink into depression because the the horrible nihilist question of why always turns into why bother, why do anything, um, and that can be. Well, I mean, I've I've spent I think thirty years now struggling with that. But you never found one answer. You never found the light in a way, or well, I've never found. Yeah, no, I've never found like a single, single. cure for that. But yeah. but I do. I have a greater respect now for for belief systems that do provide a light because I see that even though it would require a leap of faith to me, you know, for me to become, say, a Catholic or 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 a, a Taoist or a Buddhist. I can understand that there that we are meaning seeking species. We're a meaning seeking species. We it, it makes us healthy when we have something to believe in. I mean, there's neurological evidence of that now as well. We become unhealthy mentally when we when we live for nothing. We become horribly demotivated and depressed. And I, so, I have an understanding that it's important to believe in something. Uh, I'm sure I will eventually get there and throw my lot in with one belief system or another. Um, but at the same time, I guess I'm in that space just now where I see that there are different kinds of belief re- resurgent just now. Even though we live in a very nihilist time where people are very confused and very depressed. So, for example, I think there's a kind of eco-religion that's that's growing up, which is something for people to believe in passionately. And you see all the same symbolism that you saw in Christianity coming through the ecological movements 
someone painted um, a portrait of Greta Thunberg with animals around her. I don't know if you ever saw that. It was like a lion and um, a lamb. And, you know, it was straight out of the prophet Isaiah. You know, the, um, the child shall lie down with the, la- the lion and the lamb. Um, and then you've got, you know, flagellants as well. You know, Extinction Rebellion, flagellants. So this is, this is a new religion. It's a secular religion that, that's forming. Over and above the particulars of what the climate issues are, there's a need for a belief in salvation there that people are doing collectively. Um, and I think kind of wokeism is a bit like that as well. It, it's, it's a belief system which can give you value if you subscribe to it. Um, it gives you a sense of higher moral purpose. And I think, you know, this is what's come after the nihilism and the irony of our generation. You know, we used to think, oh, God, it's going to be nihilism and irony from here on in. And, and people like David Foster Wallace wrote about the need to, to let irony go and to be sincere. Well, it's happened. The millennials definitely brought in mm. this new sincerity and these forms of secular faith, ecologism and wokeism. Yeah. It's weird how they're both kind of collectivist yeah. in the sense they're submitting to this uh, these groups but at the same time possibly the most narcissistic generation ever in terms of you know the use of telephones and and everything like this so because i think on, mm. on the one hand you've got time scale mm. giving you that sense of you know hum- humiliated humanity yeah. in terms of time scale but also you've got your level of individuality mm. versus collectivism mm. submitting to some kind of whole I like, guess I have written quite a bit about individuals looking for a collective identity yeah. and and maybe going too far or or the collective experiment doesn't work so in the novel close your eyes it was about a new age community um and in the novel Nina X it's about um an underground group of Maoists um living in London um and you invariably, in the novel, because I think the novel's always an individualist art, um, an art about the crisis of individualism and choice and free will, I always end up, or novelists who write about these things, always end up writing about the clash between the collective identity and the individual at the core of the story. Um, I think it's just one of the great engines of, of what the novel is, really. And in a novel, there has to be some what Keats called negative capability, this ability to entertain all the different viewpoints mm. of the characters. And I wonder how that relates to your sense of writing opinion pieces and journalism. You know, like, do you contain all this within you? Or when you're writing the novel, are you thinking, oh, yeah, I actually believe X? Yeah, well, no, I, I suppose... For a period of time writing a novel, I'll suspend my own disbelief and believe something. So there's a novel that I'm writing just now, or I've finished the first draft and been showing it to people, and it's 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 about transhumanism or about the about the fallout from a utopian transhumanist um, movement in Silicon Valley. And um, when I was writing the book, I became fiercely luddite. Mm. and anti-technology and I was reading the Unabomber Manifesto <laughs> and getting really, I guess I, I, I love the idea of trying on a belief really passionately and really feeling for something um, I guess that makes me a bit of a tourist at the end of the day because every book I'll try a, a different belief system to see how it fits 
But, you know, also when I was writing about swinging, I did have to believe that it might actually be the solution to the problem of monogamy and divorce. Um, so there is that element of, of um, what, what, what Hunter S. Thompson called gonzo journalism. You know, you become the thing you're writing about, you enter into it, you have to believe it. Um, so you haven't uploaded your consciousness onto a <laughs> server just yet. It's just too expensive. <laughs> no, no, no. But I do know how to make bombs that will maybe take out um, an artificial intelligence <laughs> system. Because <laughs> Ted Kaczynski, mm. you know, he he had his mission and he pursued it relentlessly. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's quite a clear manifesto. It is, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's still popular now amongst mm-hmm. people. So, And he got it on the front page of... The Washington f- Post, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, if you become really non-nihilistic, mm-hmm. at some point maybe you do believe in something so so much. No, I think I possibly could become dangerous <laughs> at some point. <laughs> You know, it does cross my mind when I'm creating a cult. I've, you know, I've got another story that I'm playing around with, which is which is set in the future based on a neo-Luddite cult. Uh, just the idea that young people will just have had too much of technology at a certain point. And um, it's early days for that project, but thinking about it, I was like, I, w- I would have to write the equivalent of their Bible or their um, Ted Kaczynski Unabomber Manifesto. And that would be a real source of joy to enter into that mindset to be able to create an entire belief system for a collective um you know i might get around to doing that i might i might run out of time on that one but but there's certainly something that excites me so i've read a lot of utopias like um some of the key texts so there's hg wells's utopia and then there's there's her land which is the feminist utopia then there's walden 2 which is the um the behaviorist utopia and from the outside you just go these things are absolutely mad these these societies but when you're reading them i find anyway that i have to enter into the spirit of them and to sort of believe in them for the duration of reading the book and then afterwards you can go oh god that was you know that was nonsense. That was inherently totalitarian. H.G. Wells, what were you thinking? You know, but but you have to give him a shot. You know. But we were talking about individualism, and mm. part of the reason I don't really subscribe to individualism is because I see people's genetic mm. and familial mm. backgrounds mm. play out through sure. them, yeah, yeah, through yeah. themselves. Yeah. And when I was looking at yours, you say your granddad was like a. Calvinist, yes, or something like this. So yeah. I wonder how much these mm. kind of generations of mm. religious, yes, Protestants who changed the world, right? Mm-hmm. These Protestants mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. transformed Western civilization yep. in many ways. Uh, how you relate to that within yourself? Oh, I, I, I think about this all the time. Actually, I, there's an interesting metaphor just to pick up on what you're saying. You know, on a snooker table or a pool table, you hit one ball. And the energy hits another ball, and then it hits another ball, and it hits another ball. Eventually, entropy stops it, but you'll get like six or seven balls will be hit. It's like those are generations. So the energy that comes from one impact passes on to the next, on to the next. And it can take quite different forms. So, for example, my great-grandfather was a big Calvinist preacher in Glasgow. My grandfather was um, a Church of Scotland minister who renounced his faith after the Second World War. 
and and became a bum and potentially well, he he got divorced. This is my father's father. Potentially, I found out later, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was a hippie rebelling against Christianity, escaping from the city and going to live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and 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 he had all these very big positive utopian ideas, utterly imbued with Christian ethic. He didn't realise that though. At the same time, this idea of peace and utopia was all just a variation of the Christian heaven, you know. So he's one of the balls on the table that gets the impact of the, of the other one. And in turn, I rebelled against my father, his failed utopianism, which drove me nuts because I could see the hippie dream collapsing all through my childhood and it turning into all kinds of just drunken, uh, um, um, you know, I was going to use the word nihilistic again, the hippies wouldn't see themselves as nihilistic because they're so optimistic but their behaviours especially towards children were dreadful there's such a lot of neglect and even abuse that that went on within um, hippie families or hippie collectivities when did you first start to judge them there's that line of Oscar Wilde you Mm. know children begin loving their parents Mm. then they judge them and then maybe they might forgive them yeah no no, I've definitely been through all of those stages I think I started judging in my early 20s right and I think I had I had a bit of a nervous collapse in my in my mid 30s and I realized I'd sort of become my father and I do remember telling people that I'm like oh my god I'm as bad as he is you know, I'm. I drink to excess. I'm. I'm a fornicator and a lost man. I don't know what I'm doing in my life. I'm suicidal. I'm depressed, just like my dad was. I've become him, and then after that, I was like, I forgive him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a curious mm-hmm. um, path, but you know, as you say, I think it's important to think about our lives across the generations. I think. I'm still grappling with the problem that my grandfather set off by renouncing his faith. And it went through modernism in the 60s. Wouldn't it be great if I picked up a faith at the end of it so we we could kind of go full circle? Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I think that's a really good way, Neil, to, to think about individualism. You're not this isolated thing in space and time that has no connection to the past or or the future and I, I think part of the problems of individualism as a belief system is it ties in so nicely now to the state we're in with, with capitalism we're, we're in this short termism capitalism I warned people about this a decade ago that capitalism was done with the family you know the 1950s family unit you know hey you know buy a car buy a washing machine buy a kitchen it's like no capitalism's realised it's saturated and now we have to have divorce and people living apart because we can sell many, many more things if we encourage people to be so-called individuals. Um, so, it's yeah, th- this cult of individualism is really leading to, to alienation and exploitation, I think, by, by the world that we live in. There's a couple of really good stories I've seen you write about. Uh, one is um, uh, you building a nuclear bomb shelter <laughs> yeah, in yeah. your garden. So you've been 
this is articles and interviews related to um, how to survive everything the doomsday novel and the other one is like your dad taking you to see banned government footage of what happens after a nuclear war when you're Mm. like 11 or something how traumatised were you by all these Mm. things well that was that was actually the campaign for nuclear disarmament but there was a film that was made by the BBC that they then banned and locked away um, because it was deemed to be too, um, you know, provocative and challenging and threatening to the populace. Um, so the campaign for nuclear disarmament managed to smuggle it out of the BBC and took a 16mm print of it round all the little community centres um, around Britain. So my dad took me along to see that at the age of 11, and I was utterly horrified, just, just terrified. And they were, they were also showing clips of some other stuff from the archive, which was the Protect and Survive I think that was the one footage. I looked up after you mentioned, after I showed Yeah, you yeah, the Protect and Survive stuff's amazing. I remember I was shaking and I went to my dad and said, I have to do something. And he said, well, I'll go and see what we can do then. And uh, I filled in a youth CND membership form straight away and mm. got um, a little photocopied copy of Protect and Survive and took it home. <laughs> And became lost in the world of nuclear um, disaster. I mean, we lived only 15 miles away from Dunray Nuclear Power Station as well. And it was only really members of CND that knew what Dunray was really up to. I mean, it was an experimental fast breeder reactor um, supposed to create extraordinary amounts of electricity. But it was actually fast breeding plutonium for weapons. So I was the kid in school going, they're making plutonium for bombs 15 miles away. And all the other kids were just not not part of that at all. Well, so it's was, amazing yeah. how people will block it out. And even now, where we've got a potential new Cold War yeah. starting, yeah. you know, another nuclear threat with Russia, yeah. uh, NATO kicking off. Like it, it feels like the threat of nuclear war is still further away, even though, you know, during mm. the 80s, it was mm. everywhere. Yeah, for you sure. Know, for the sure. day after... Yeah. In general, like, if there's like a 0.1% chance mm. of total mm. nuclear annihilation, mm. that can be as scary as like a 10% chance that you'll get beaten up in the street. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. can yeah. relate these different risks. Um, and I think the, the, the kind yeah. of... The prepper mindset mm. is the one that expands mm. those risks beyond all reason, right? Well, I think there's something... You see, like, I'm, so I became an 11-year-old prepper, and, like, part of the thing was, like, the prepping for the end of the world. There's a strange degree of comfort in that, um, which I find is, is psychologically perverse but interesting. So I can... I was like a horribly bullied kid didn't fit in because my parents were hippies they went north to a place where it was a working class community which didn't like hippies uh, of course so hippie children my sister and I got you know victimised for years I had a terrible stammer I couldn't speak properly and all these kind of things but in the prepper mindset I took comfort in the idea that hey at least our family is prepared for the end of the world I mean it's extraordinary as well because my grandmother was very much obsessed with the end of the world, but the Christian end of the world mm. that she was sort of anticipating. And I do wonder how much of that ideology from from the Calvinist church 
fed into our family. And even my father was drawn to the idea of nuclear apocalypse because his mother had made him fear the Christian apocalypse. And so then it passed on to me. Um, But it was funny because we had three generations in the house and none of them thought there was a problem with me preparing for the end of the world. My grandmother was fine with that because, you know, Jesus was going to arrive. My father was was like, oh, yep, capitalism's got to end sooner or later. Uh, and there was me filling under the stairs with, with you know, cans of beans and, and peanut butter and, and, you know, HP7 batteries from a torch. And... She, did, she didn't want to use the bucket, though, to go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the whole, yeah, yeah no, I had to... I had to, I had to that's one of those wake-up calls, isn't it? The bucket. I mean, you're you're a little bit older than me. I think you're about 10 years older than me. But um, I remember the 90s as being quite an optimistic time. But actually, I was like going back, thinking about some of the artists. Yeah, yeah. So you went to the art school, you know, late 80s, early 90s, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, when you look at those artists of that era, you mm. know, Ch- Damien Hirst type. Yeah. Chapman Brothers. Chapman Brothers, Jenny Savile, Douglas Gordon. All those people. There is a kind of streak of nihilism... Absolutely. Uh, ...going through it. So I wonder, like, how hopeless... Or, or what was the nihilism like then in this kind of slightly kind well, I think, post... No, I think war. that's really interesting. that We moved from the punk nihilism, which was the 70s, right? 70s and early 80s, into what would be, like, symptomatic nihilism, which is, like, second stage. It's It's, like taking the line from the Sex Pistols, you know, no future, but, but, but living it. So, I mean, the difference between the punks and, say, grunge, which I was very part of, grunge and industrial music, was, you know, punks had, say, like, one horrible death, Sid Vicious. Um, we had many horrible deaths, uh, you know, including Kurt Cobain, Alexander McQueen, the, the fashion god... Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. These are all really brutal suicides with massive addiction problems. I think that really, that was, you know, Chester Bennington as well, another great Generation X hero. All of Chester's songs in Lincoln Park were all warnings for 15 years that he was suicidal. And we just lived with that as admirers of, of his music. And the same with Kurt Cobain. You look at the last album in utero that Kurt Cobain did. It's an it's struggling with suicide. It, nothing matters. Nihilism has sucked him in completely. Um, and yet we bought it. We consumed it. We thought it was cool. So I think that was that was the sort of secondary stage of nihilism is when you start to live it. You're not just proclaiming it and thinking, hey, it's great to tear things down. It starts to eat away at your own being and your own reasons to do things. I mean, I think Kurt Cobain's just, you know, you see footage of him now and you see he's just ruined. In his wheelchair on stage, play acting and, you know, just provoking to see if anyone cares. Writing a song like Rape Me, you know. Um, He was just... Yeah, so so there was kind of fallout after... Cobain and, and probably after Queen as well, where the evidence was coming in that this very cool hip nihilism, this negativity towards everything, could be very dangerous. And some of us escaped the orbit of that and some didn't. 
And I guess when I was growing up, it was like Britpop. It was like these cheeky chappies <laughs> right. kind of going away. Yeah, it was yeah. like slightly different. You know, we did yeah, yeah. Nirvana, but then, it, you know, there was this like line in the sand. Yeah, yeah, your, your wonder wall instead of... of, of um... Of of the terrifying final album, of Kurt Cobain, yeah. <laughs> Instead of rape me, yeah. Rape me, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I wonder how all these things connect. Like, uh, there's a good essay by Galen Strawson mm-hmm. called "Against Narrativity," mm-hmm. where he says it's kind of perverse to lump together all these random events and say, mm. "Oh, there's a narrative." Mm. Like, we should embrace the fact that they are random. Now, I think as a novelist, mm. you can't help but turn things into a narrative yeah no but I think that uh, I, I wonder yeah you know I see I come across that opinion a lot and it's like a sort of post-existentialist position that the guy's talking about there so nothing in life adds up it's all just random um, the problem with that I mean I go back to people like Zygmunt Bowman the sociologist who, who passed away 10 years ago he was one of the first to talk about the danger of the collapsing life narrative. As a Marxist, a late Marxist or post-Marxist, he would talk about how the collapse of the life narrative fuels the next stage of capitalism. The will, I mean, we hear the World Economic Forum talking in these terms now. You will own nothing. You will not have a full-time job, right? Everything will be hired, rented to you. It's like permanence will start to... to be eaten away as we enter the fourth industrial revolution. Um, so I'm, I'm very wary of that. I'm scared of where we're headed um, with that breakdown of long-term structures. And I think that, that people who sort of advocate that everything's um, broken up and fragmented and that's just the way things are, they're part of the problem and, and not really seeing things from a, from a bigger timeline. I mean, I always go back to when was the last time you had something that lasted for life? You know, is it a table or a car or a house or a partner or a job? Certainly, there were generations upon generations upon generations of people who even took their name from the thing they did. Smith, a family of, of, of Smiths who, who, who worked making horseshoes all, all the names Mr. Fisher you know um, was a fisherman if it, you know 50 generations back there would be these family connections that would run through the generations I always thought it was the kind of generation just before the hippies mm. that, that were the last ones to have yeah. any sense of you're just stuck who you are. Beyond right. that, you can yeah. reinvent yourself. So yeah, yeah. if you ever read the letters of Philip Larkin, yeah. you know, he's just enduring himself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of what institutions mm-hmm. are there for. Like yeah. you know, like they're they're things that you put trust in, but yes. you're stuck with them and that's that's not always a bad thing. No, it's not. In fact there's a quote I think it's from Chesterton, he said that um Traditions are the answers to the questions we forgot we need to ask. Something like that, I'm paraphrasing. But I think there are a whole bunch of solutions tied into traditions. And when you smash the traditions up... I mean, see, I think we're in sort of stage three nihilism now. Where we've gone through, it's fun and it's punk. We've gone through, things are falling apart. Um, And now we've gone into this sort of like, it's just spreading everywhere. It's like, we're going to put on a veneer that 
it's fine and it's fun, but but actually all the structures are fragmenting, all social structures are fragmenting, we're becoming more atomized. You know, so now we're in nihilism is fun. This is stage three. It's kind of ignoring the horrors of what stage two was. And part of nihilism is fun. You know, life is meaningless. Seek only fun for yourself. Is it spreads that atomization? I mean, I see it's it's like, it's chatterbait, you know? It's people masturbating alone for money and watched by 700 people. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of level of happiness and community that we're talking about in the state of, of you know, of atomization. And you've managed to keep on top of, like, the latest developments because, you know, your your recent novel, How to Survive Everything, is, is narrated by a 15-year-old girl. How was that, um, you know, in terms of research and in terms of getting on top of what people are doing now? What's funny is I try to work as intuitively as possible. So um, it's only since writing the book that I've realised that Gen Z have actually got a real problem. So they've got a problem of aimlessness. I've done research after I wrote the book rather than before about the depression and hopelessness that Gen Z are experiencing. This, this, this. Um, yeah, I see it with my daughter and her friends. That they're very lost. You know, there's like there was some. Um, my daughter gave an example of a friend of hers who got this random anime tattoo on her arm. And my daughter said, why did you do that? And the girl said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, what does it stand for? What does it mean? She says, oh, it's just something I found online. And um, there's this sort of sense of, of just um, that with Gen Z, meaning, the collapse of meaning is, is the real core problem. So, I mean, in the book... Intuitively, I, I must have got some of that because you've got a daughter of a divorce and both parents have different belief systems entirely. So the mother of, of uh, Haley is uh, she's just a modern, efficient consumer and worker and she's got a good, well-protected, sort of bourgeois existence, but the father is, is, is a born-again apocalypse prepper and he's been building this safe house, this way to escape from the modern world. The only problem being that he doesn't see his kids more than for one day a week, so he's got to abduct his kids away from their mother. Um, so the idea there was really was just that Haley was stuck in the middle between these two belief systems and asking, what's truth? What's meaning? What's value? Who do I trust? Who do I betray? Is my dad insane? Or is my mum wrong? Is my mum not seen the horrific pandemic that's coming my dad's been preparing for or has my dad want it to happen so he can steal us um, so yeah there was just that big question there that I've since sort of found out is is quite quintessentially Gen Z it's been caught between life narratives not knowing where you stand and the terrible thing which again is kind of commented on in the book is is that when you don't know what to believe in and you don't know who you are or what you're doing, what do you do? Well, you spend a lot of time on your phone <laughs> and you just distract yourself with tons of stuff. You know, TikTok and Facebook and, you know, you search little videos and, you know, how to survive everything or, or what mm-hmm. the meaning of life is or, you know, and you build up little theories and you share them with your friends. and it, It's just sort of dancing around the edge of the void, though. Yeah, I mean, there is a sense of, um, like, uh, 
yeah, like you say, World Economic Forum, mm. um, UBI, mm-hmm. optimism that yeah. there's going to be, you know, AI. I think I think um, mm. that kind of UBI optimism seems to have disappeared. Yeah, uh, that you know that was there a few years ago. I think especially with the war in Ukraine, yeah. people are facing up to the reality of, mm-hmm. you know, like where their energy mm-hmm. that powers the phones comes yep. from and everything. Mm. But um, when we met 10 years ago, uh, you were kind of deep in a project about utopia and thinking a lot about utopia. I was wondering how the desire for utopia connects with the desire for the end of the world and like yeah. whether you think mm. of them in the same similar category. I do exactly, and I think I've, so. So, what tends to happen is I have an impulse, and then I'll explore it. Sometimes after I've written a book, I'll, I'll just keep going with the research. So I've sort of basically uncovered that utopia <laughs> and apocalypse are are they come from the same Judeo-Christian root, mm. basically. So if you just trace it back through history, and you go back to the Christian sources, so so the New Jerusalem. The thousand-year reign of Christ will emerge after the apocalypse. That's the basic Christian narrative. Most of the roots that we have of apocalyptic thinking have the roots within Christianity, within that story. And also, utopianism starts to creep out in about the 15th century, breaks away from the Mm. apocalypse narrative, and it says, look, we don't have to to have... um, the apocalypse before we can have paradise we'll just build paradise and it starts off as you know it's a christian heresy to start with utopia you know it's known as the pelagian heresy after pelagius is the idea that there's no flaw in humans so we're perfectible um so basically that's just what utopia is it it, it gets reborn generation after generation after generation and occasionally reconnects back to the apocalypse narrative so you get that in in communism which is can be traced right the way back to christianity you get the idea that the new perfect society of equals will come into existence after the apocalyptic revolution so it's basically the same christian narrative again it's the same it's the same metaphor if you like and you know you get that with with anarchists and nihilists as well we'll destroy everything and then we'll have a perfect society they don't realize but that's just the christian apocalypse heaven story that 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 they've um, they didn't consume it themselves it's been generations and generations and generations have twisted it like you know like a game of of i don't know if it's correct to call this chinese whispers anymore but you know how story changes over the years and every mouth it gets every mouth and ear it gets passed through yeah so so apocalypse and utopia are 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 really just the same story all of the all of, all that's evil and wrong with people will be wiped out in the apocalypse and then the survivors who are the good people and the pure people will be those who survive the aftermath in paradise heaven or utopia you know i mean there is pascal's wager when it comes to heaven which is you know you might as well uh, pray because you know it could turn out to be true you don't really lose anything by praying and uh, i wonder you know the end of the world could happen. There could be no, a flesh-eating. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I was wondering, like, what is your plan when it all kicks off? Do you, I mean, obviously, <laughs> if you have got a compound ready, you probably don't yeah. want to say this <laughs> on air. But Yeah. No, I think I, I would definitely, after looking into prepping, I think I'd probably just go down with the ship, though. Uh, I would struggle a bit. Um, sorry to be more clear on that. So the problem, one of the problems with... with being a prepper is that every f- book 
you read on prepping every final chapter, after you've learned in the preceding chapters how to farm your own fish and how to have a self-sustaining eco-garden and all the rest of it, the more you do that, all that amazing self-sustaining stuff, the more the final chapter has to be about weapons because you'll have the unprepped around you. When the grey goo AI takes over, when the zombie flesh-eating disease takes over, when the flood comes, whatever, the starving, unprepared neighbours will come and, you know, demand and invade and, and attack. So this is the great sort of heroic prepper story is, is, is a, you know, final chapter of every manual is, is like how to protect yourself against the marauding hordes. Because why you need to get into archery and yeah, yeah, such things rather than yeah. anything that's going to run out of bullets. It, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, a good, a good crossbow. Good is, crossbow, that's it, yeah. Is, is, is probably the best thing, yeah. Um, slingshots as well are very popular with with preppers. Because one of the reasons I admire you as a writer and as a you know person, as a thinker and everything, is because you are, you know, you do think for yourself and you're not totally trapped within this kind of friend-enemy distinction. You and no friends, I was once called. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, seems, yeah. it seems a lot of people end up, you know, like... The world is so tribal. Maybe I'm trying to collect a kind of group of mm. outcasts. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good idea. <laughs> as a project, but I think it's a great idea. And we do tend to cluster. Yeah. Um, I have outcast friends all over the world now, really. So, what 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 do you believe in now? What do I believe in now? Ah, oh, God, you really ask the hard questions. <laughs> well, I'd I'd love to say there's a single belief system. Um, that I believe in, but you know, there's not a single belief system that I believe in. I, I think what I do is I'm working my way towards a more single, singular belief system through working at precisely what doesn't work and why things don't mm. work. So I, for a long time I called myself a post-Marxist and then I called myself an anti-utopian. So there's something in there though, which is that I'm... I know that when people have like panacea solutions, total solutions for everything, that's just something that humans do and they do it wrong every single time. So I'm not an idealist. I don't believe that there are fixes for the human being. So that would put me in the more in the pessimistic tradition. And, you know, the belief that human beings are in some way flawed, that we carry around our own problems. I mean, you, you look neurologically at, at, at the way people are put together, the physiobiology, you know, you, you can't get rid of hate because hate is a defence mechanism against predators, whatever. Um, love may seem like a wonderful thing and you can talk about universal love, but at the same time, love physically is about reproduction and is selective. And for all the people you love, there are other people you don't love. For every good thing in people, there's there's a natural negative to it as well. So I'm against the enforcing of false positivity and positivity projects. I think like a Christian or a Buddhist, I would say humans are broken and humans are bad. And let's start there. Let's say that we're never going to get rid of suffering, but we have to deal with ways that we can make sense of the suffering that we experience. And we can try to lessen suffering for others. I mean, it's why I'm drawn to Schopenhauer and his talk about the importance of compassion. 
I can't go all the way into Christianity because I can't do Christianity with the miracles and with heaven. I've read recently two versions, two very interesting versions of the Bible written at the turn of the 19th century, uh, sorry, of the New Testament. Tolstoy tried to rewrite the New Testament, taking out all the miracles, everything miraculous. And on the other side of the world, one of the American presidents went through the Bible, Jefferson, went through the New Testament, and he did the same thing as Tolstoy, but he, with four copies of the New Testament and a razor, he took out all the miracles and just mm. presented this as this amazing sort of artwork, the Jefferson Bible, it's called. So Tolstoy and Jefferson, both at the turn of the 19th century, said, well, we pretty much adhere to the Christian doctrine or morality, but we can't abide with the miracles and the resurrection. So let's try to hold Christianity together without them. So they created these two versions of the New Testament. I read that recently and I still thought, no. (laughs) I I was really hopeful, actually. That was like, yeah, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could do Christianity without, you know, without the hocus pocus. But I I was unconvinced um, by both of them. Because Nassim Taleb, he talks about the idea of Lindy. Uh-huh. If something's been around a long time, yes. it's probably going to be around yes. a long time. And yeah. that, you know, there's, I think it's a cassava plant that they have in Africa mm. that if you don't cook it a certain way, then you'll slowly die of cyanide poisoning. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It has to be done a certain yeah. way. And this is institutional knowledge mm. across the years, but no one could rationally tell you that's mm. the reason why we cook it like this. Right, it's yeah, just, yeah, it's yeah. Kind it's kind been of passed on through passed the tradition. Through generations. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how much of our wisdom, like the Bible, like the yes. wisdom, exists just because it works. Yes. And it has, like, you know, value across time because it's helped form long-lasting communities... Well, I mean, you find it's it's so strange, but, you know, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you do unto yourself, is within all of their religions. Interestingly, it's not in political philosophy. <laughs> you won't find it in, in... You find it in kind of corrupted forms in Marxism, whatever. So you find a universal plan to make everyone um, behave in that way. So we'll make everyone do unto others as, as, as they'll do unto themselves by having a gulag and a military and a state of surveillance. But... Um, I'm going off on one of my rants again, sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, so, the, so the universal golden rule, yeah, there are just, again, there are biological reasons for it. There's, there's innate reasons why a species that is more collective. We don't, we don't go off like so many other early species are, are alone, spend their lives alone. They lay their eggs. They never see their children they go off, they hunt, they live, they die, whatever. Um, so many insects are like that, quite a lot of fish are like that. We're, we learned as naked apes that we, have, that we can take down a big animal and all eat it together if we all work together. And we've been doing this a long, 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 long time. So it's just part of our evolutionary psychology that, that we, we need to treat each other like we want to be treated. So I, I think there's scientific evidence now to prove that basic religious tenet, comet, come to all religions, is true. And therefore, Nietzsche would be wrong, you know. Um, Nietzsche, a very isolated man, dreaming of a sort of form of, of hierarchy and dominance, where people like himself would be very much at the top of, of that, like superhumans, ubermensch, whatever. 
I think a lot of that is, is a grandiose fantasizing of someone who's just removed from community and family and and I think you know he grappled with Christianity in the way you're saying because he knew there was something really true and really powerful about it but he had to fight it all the way I, I, I've got immense compassion for Nietzsche uh, uh, well thank you very much Ewan for this conversation I think it's been uh, well very stimulating for me and I hope it's been enjoyable <laughs> oh it's been fantastic you. thank you Neil fantastic thank you cheers <laughs>